so the the title for the evening really was can we separate the art from the artist uh, i can't remember who it, who or what it was about but i heard this on the radio fairly recently um and it kind of triggered a conversation between me and emily um and i thought actually it'd be an interesting one to go into not just in a in an artistic sense as quite often it's talked about culturally but in a broader sense about us as individuals and how do we differentiate between uh, good and bad things people do and how people are as people do we judge based on just the things people do a particular example that i think about a year ago now there was a fresh wave of allegations about michael jackson and some of the child abuse um, allegations uh, and at that point a lot of conversation arose about can you separate the artist from the art or should we is it right to still support the music and the work of michael jackson um, should we think of him differently as a musician, as a artist, regardless of what he's done, or do we need to reconsider our support for him as an individual based on the allegations that people were bringing to him? Uh, and that makes me think that I think probably in a wider sense, we do that as a society. We, we judge from what we see people do because that's the easiest thing to perceive when we <coughs> witness I don't know, a parent smacking their kid in the street or the homeless man begging on the streets or whatever it might be. Well, we judge and we perceive first through what we see people do. Even particularly with strangers, we don't know their, their heart, their motivation behind it. And this, is, this has gotten now to a point where, I don't know if you've heard, come across the phrase cancel culture. Essentially means yeah. kind of a public withdrawing of support from uh, public figures or celebrities a withdrawing of support for them because of something they've done that people found objectionable or offensive. And this can be kind of week by week, there are stories coming through of politicians, musicians, TV stars who have been cancelled as it were. And a lot of the time this can be something kind of a simple mistake, an honest mistake they've made. Some of the times it's thing they've done years and years ago. So particularly with Twitter, people have tweeted things five, ten years ago that people are now using against them. I'll give some examples, specific examples in a moment. The cancel culture idea is, is kind of responding on two fronts. The first of which is a response against a genuinely objectionable thing. So someone saying something homophobic or racist or just generally rude, we are allowed publicly to object against that, particularly if they're a public figure to be held to account by their viewers, their, their audience, whatever it might be. But the underlying thing with cancel culture is a, a response to potential abuse of power. People don't like when they see a celebrity or someone who's a politician and uh, someone who's famous, whatever it might be, in a position of privilege, abusing that. And yeah. so they are sometimes they're called out to a higher extent. They are made example of because of their position to show that they they shouldn't or cannot have that sort of privilege. So I've got a video I'm going to share with you. This is a video of a story only a week ago of Dr. Catherine Calderwood, who is the Scottish Chief Medical Officer. So that was Dr. Catherine Calderwood. I'm sure many of you saw that story. Uh, Scottish yeah. Medical Officer responsible for a lot of guidance, public guidance on coronavirus and the lockdown and quarantine, court breaking it, issued that public apology and I think maybe a day or two after that resigned. She, at that point when she resigned, she said, the First Minister and I have had a further conversation this evening and we've agreed that the justifiable focus on my behaviour 
risks becoming a distraction from the hugely important job that government and medical profession has to do in getting the country through the coronavirus pandemic. Having worked so hard on the government's response, that's the last thing I want. I mean, I'm 21 now, 27. And as long as I've been kind of conscious and educated enough to follow any sort of politics, this story, the public apology, uh, seems to arise again and again and again. And it's a strange pattern that we, we go through where someone does something. I mean, yeah, she broke, she broke her own rules, called her a hypocrite. People were calling for her to resign because that was their response to that. She felt she was abusing her position of power. I don't know how you feel about how what she did. I, I would say I don't it sound like she was putting anyone actively in harm's way, but she felt it was she had no option but to resign, I think. And that was that was a week ago, I think, week and a half. Within that time there's been I think a couple more, even before even between me finishing my notes and us meeting here tonight, uh, I think this morning another minister resigned for a similar offence. There was an MP called Connor Burns. Uh, I don't know if you saw about him. He he resigned as a government minister because he had been caught attempting to intimidate a member of the public who was in a kind of a legal dispute with his father, um, and he'd written a sort of a aggressive letter using House of Commons notepaper. And so for both of those parts, he was suggested that he was suspended for seven days. But he again, after a public apology, still felt. The pressure was too great for him to resign, so he did. So that, those two examples, and many more like them, suggest to me that we, as a society, as a culture, we view people's worth as purely based on what they do or do not do, what they say or do not say in a particular instance. But is that a fair or a credible position to have at all? So as we go through this evening, things to bear in mind are, what does the Bible say about these things? Uh, which I think it has plenty to say. What does our history and the traditions tell us about these things? And what does our personal experience tell us about it? How do we feel about it? And why do we feel those ways? Let's start with the biblical example. And I'm sure you'll know exactly where I'm going as soon as I mention his name. But uh, King David, great, uh. great king of Israel. The 1 Samuel 13 and Acts 13 both talk about David being a, a, a man after God's own heart. Truly an example for us all. The way he followed the Lord, he gave his life to God in an exemplary fashion. Until we come across 2 Samuel 11, as I did recently, wherein it's about one chapter. He breaks three of the Ten Commandments. So he, thou shalt not murder, he, he breaks that one. Thou shalt not commit adultery, he breaks that one. And thou shalt not covet your neighbour's wife, he breaks that one. And if you throw, well... Uh, arguments made that it was a, a rape on Bathsheba, then it's not in the commandments, but certainly he's had a bad day in the office. Now, if King David was around today, any one of those things would be enough for him to be called to resign, to abdicate his position on the throne, that he, he would be seen for abusing his power in the way that he did. And we probably, within a week or two, would have heard no more from him. Yet, the Bible tells a story which uh, takes a different path there's a part of that which is redeemed. David's lines are redeemed through Jesus. But David himself has, has some redemption as a character because God judges his heart. The man after God's own heart, his, his passion, his motivation is to serve. Once he, um, he's repented, which he's judged to have repented earnestly and honestly, he's punished still. And again, you can, you can decide whether you think that's fair or not. His, 
son, I think it was a son or his child at least, with Bathsheba's dies, and he, he mourns that and he repents his actions. Uh, and from that point, he rebuilds his character, his integrity. Now, that's, that's a, a, a good biblical example of someone who is not judged by what they did, but rather by the condition of their heart um, and judged by God rather than well, the, by the people, I suppose, who, who still judged him a, a good king and a good man, so it seems. But it seems to me that it's not always that clear in, in real, well, I say in real life, in, in our lives today, people are complex, people that we think are good people do bad things, people that we write off as bad people do good things. And the variety of motives and ideals that come into play when we look at who someone is, how we assess a person, whether they're good or bad, if we're called to do that. So I'd like to take a little longer look at a person, Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther, 16th century theologian, basic background is he was fundamental in the separation of, from the Catholic Church, the, the Reformation period. He helped establish the Protestant Church. He was one of the most influential theologians of all time, really. A lot of our current Western theology is based heavily on Luther's ideas. He translated the Bible from Greek and Latin into common German so that everybody could, anyone who could read even a bit of German could read the Bible, read God's words in the Bible, uh, which hadn't really been done before that point. He was heavily influential toward William Tyndale, who did the same thing for the English Bible. And the act of translating a Bible is very political, it's very personal. And in Luther's translation, we see a lot of his own perspectives on the church, the way the Catholic Church had been, in his eyes, corrupt. And they were getting people to pay indulgences to essentially try and reduce their time in purgatory or wipe away some of their sins. They would try to atone for that by paying the church. And the church would encourage people to do this. And that's one of many practices that Luther spoke publicly against. So it's, it's hard to measure his influence, really. He, he really was very influential in terms of the way our church looks today. And loads of it is really, really great. He enabled individuals to access God's word, as they say. He encouraged people to look at salvation by faith rather than by good works. Again, a common teaching of the Catholic Church at the time was you have to work, you have to do good works pay, attend church, do these things, you have to do all the, do the good works to get saved. And Luther did away with that. His salvation by faith was fundamental and still stands today across a lot of the Western church, particularly, and the church worldwide, really, that his ideas stand true and people still, still live by them. But not all of Luther's ideas and his writings, his teachings are quite so palatable. He, he was not, <laughs> not afraid of controversy and something that isn't oft talked about is that uh, Luther was a very public anti-Semite. He, he wrote lots of works which included strongly anti-Semitic, not even sentiment, kind of outright anti-Semitism. He was, a, yeah, vocally anti-Semitic. So he, he published in 1543 uh, a work called On the Jews and Their Lies, which among other things, we read this list, he promoted the persecution of Jews. He said that people should burn down their schools, their homes, their synagogues, destroy their prayer books, and ultimately should force them into forced labour or expulsion from Germany. He also wrote, we are at fault in not slaying them, which in modern history might sound hauntingly familiar. And it's not surprising then that we can see a connection between Luther's teaching on the Jews and the Nazi ideology around Jewish people. In fact, the, the Nazis were very public in their appreciation of Martin Luther. They would commonly at rallies show his works 
particularly this one, but others too, they would use him as a source of credibility because he was this esteemed theologian, man of great regard and great respect. People in a particularly Christian country wouldn't dare argue against Martin Luther. He was a great thinker, the great writer, great teacher. And so they utilised his writings on the Jews for their own purposes. So we then have a personal conundrum, because do we disregard all of Luther, all his writing, his teachings, because from his heart, from his mind, also came all these hateful things about Jewish people? Or do we think about different works differently? Do we consider some of his teaching around the church as one thing, his teaching around the Jewish people as one thing, his teaching around faith as one thing? I think in this case, it's like more extreme than some cases, but he, it suggests to me that we should probably separate the theologian and the person from their theology and their ideas. If not, we, we would lose so much good teaching that, that Luther provided. We would lose a lot of insight that's valuable and has been invaluable over time to us. There's one project I wanted to mention. Some of you might have come across it before. This is Luther and the Jews by Richard Harvey, Nick's brother. And the heart behind his project in writing this book was very much related to this. He wanted to, speaking to a primarily Jewish readership, wanted to reinvestigate the works of Luther and see what could be salvaged for a community for whom his name was quite tainted. And for those who were not Jewish, to read this and to learn more about his views, to challenge our perceptions on Martin Luther, the kind of saint who was good as gold in every way. So I'm just going to read a small extract from this, because I think it speaks quite well about the heart behind why he's written this book. I think if you don't have copies, I think Nick and Jan might have some copies um, if you're interested or you can borrow mine. So this is Richard Harvey. My friend Mark Kinzer and I were in Moscow for a meeting of the Helsinki Consultation on Jewish Continuity in the Body of Christ, an ecumenical gathering of Jewish believers in Jesus from many different denominational backgrounds. I was describing my book project to coincide with the 500th anniversary celebrations in 2017 of the birthing of Protestantism under Martin Luther. My fascination and arguments with his life, writings, legacy, and my hope that issues of Martin Luther and the Jews would be of interest to both Lutherans and Jews, particularly Jewish believers in Jesus. Mark, my friend, asked a question which struck the very heart of the project. What did Luther say that is of value for Messianic Jews that has not already been said better by others? In other words, why bother with Luther when the overall effect of his contribution had been bad news for Jews throughout history? And anything good that Luther did have to say was already available in the writing and teaching of others. I know that Mark had been more influenced by Roman Catholic theology uh, and had moved more in Catholic spheres, so his question was a fair one. Why bother with Luther? I had to think quickly for a few minutes. I know that what for Protestants is perhaps his greatest contribution, the restoration of the doctrine of justification by faith, had been seriously challenged and revised by those proposing the new perspective on Paul. They've argued that Luther was imposing on his battles with the Pope and papal authority in the Church of Rome a somewhat inaccurate and misleading construction of the nature of rabbinic Judaism at the time of Christ, which appeared to him to demand justification by works of the law as a means of satisfying God's requirements for righteousness. For Catholics, such a misreading of their position, which was subsequently modified to correct such a misunderstanding, was not a blessing. What I came up with was a restatement of the centrality of Christ, of grace, of scripture and of faith, Luther's solas, his onlys, couched in a way that was not inimicable either to Roman Catholics or to Jews, but it was hard work. I also spoke about Luther's sacramental theology, his practical and user-friendly teaching materials in his shorter and longer catechisms, 
its spirituality and depth of devotion. But it was challenging. I do not think I convinced my friends. And that is why I think this book is necessary. I want my Lutheran friends and those indebted to Martin Luther and his theology to have something good to say about him. Good news for Jews and Jewish believers in Jesus especially. That will be well received, understood and appreciated. Likewise, I want my Jewish family and friends, and especially Messianic Jews, to engage with the many positives that can be found in Martin Luther's life, learning and legacy, not dwell exclusively on the undeniably significant and overwhelming legacy of his anti-Semitism, which resulted in the worst disasters and harshest treatments of the Jewish people received at the hands of the so-called Christians and the death of six million Jews during the Holocaust. So it's clear that we have the ability to critically engage the work of different thinkers, artists, musicians, teachers. This is what we do naturally, I think, in conversation. When we're talking to someone, we can hear one statement they make and agree with it. You can hear the following statement disagree. We don't hold those two things uh, as mutually exclusive. We, we can differentiate. But quite often we hear about people, listen to people or read people, or see art, listen to music, watch films of people. We can struggle to do that. We can also fall into the trap of missing out on good things people that we tend to disagree with have to say. I'm aware that I've spoken a lot about, particularly with Luther, the, taking the good and the bad and separating them, but that's of someone who is generally well regarded. The flip side of the coin is that people that are generally badly regarded can still have a lot to offer. People can have wisdom, can have truth and values to share that we might ignore if we base our judgment purely on what they do or something they've said. So my question really is, how many people do we regularly engage with, be that authors, filmmakers, TV show hosts, musicians, politicians, newspaper writers or editors that we tend to disagree with? How often do we open ourselves up to be challenged by the views of others, to just listen to them and to see their perspectives, their side of the argument, without wanting to come straight back at them? How often do we learn from those people? And how often do we challenge the ideas of the people that we really respect, those we might otherwise follow blindly? That's one risk of this prejudgment of someone based on what they do. If we, if we give someone our respect, if we believe they've earned our respect, and this is quite common within the church with the, with the pastor position, people will accept, in some instances, anything a pastor or a vicar or a priest or a pope will say because of their position without engaging critically with it. So that's our challenge, I think, to, to develop a, a culture within ourselves, within our communities, our families, our church, where we feel we can do both of those things, where we can avoid prejudging for better or for worse, and we can approach people's thoughts and ideas openly if we disagree with them naturally, to still listen and see what we might have to learn to glean from them. And if we tend to agree or want to agree with them, if it's someone respects, we can challenge them what areas they might not have found. So I'm going to open that up there. My first question is, do you think that we are too quick to pass judgment on people? And do we have the insight into their motivations? Or when do we have insight, do you think, enough to judge someone on things other than what they do? <laughs> 